Hello, peace lovers and peacemakers. I'm Sarah Jamshidi. You are watching Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. For today's show, I have two guests from Golden State, California. They both live in San Diego. Catherine Hassan Hamilton is an educator, writer, wife, and the mother of an amazing seven-year-old. Catherine has been a leader for effective organizational change. She deeply believes in student-centered decision-making. She believes in collaboration between families and the communities to create sustainable change. Katrina is a contributing writer for the Los Angeles Times Kids Reading Room. She self-published The Golden Keys, and she has books in progress. They include Malik and Rashid's Ramadan, Aid Adventure, and Oprah Overcomes. Through her work and activism, Katrina aims to create an environment that all people, including African-American children, feel presented, safe, and valued. Here I do have Katrina Hassan-Hamilton. Hello, Katrina. Hello. Greetings to you, uh, Sarah, and to your audience and uh, esteemed panelists. Um, Absolutely. for having me. Absolutely. It's very good to have you here. My other guest is Yusef Miller. Yusef was born in Muslim family in Chester, Pennsylvania. He joined the U.S. Army right after high school and stayed in the Navy for 24 years. Currently, he is the board member of Islamic Society of North County in California and Tree City Islamic Center. Yusef has undertaken numerous leadership roles in fight against injustice. As the Interfaith Justice San Diego, Yusuf supports local unions as they fight for livable wage and dignity. He's been very active in fighting human trafficking in San Diego. Okay, my friends, very, very welcome to Peace Mindedly. Thank you. Very good. So our audience are international. We have stronghold in Europe, in many cities in Europe, Paris, London, Amsterdam, and we we have um, an audience in Istanbul, in Dubai, in many cities in the Middle East. And I wanted to you uh, for someone who is not living in the United States and watching the footages on CNN and on BBC. Tell them what's happening in the United States in regard to Black Lives Matter. I would like Yusef to go first and then I go to Katrina. Okay. When it comes to Black Lives Matter, we have to understand the difference between uh, the Black Lives Matter organization and the Black Lives Matter movement. So the organization is a specific group of people with the name Black Lives Matter officially. The Black Lives Matter movement is extended beyond that with the the same focus, but it's a multi-ethnic, multicultural, um, multi-background movement that, that really sparked at this time during the George Floyd murder. So here in the U.S., from coast to coast, uh, north to south, cities all over the, the nation have been reacting to the, the death of George Floyd. And George Floyd, was he lost his life by a law, a law enforcement officer kneeling on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. This is, this is inhumane. The man died from asphyxiation and lack of blood to his brain and, and throughout his body. And 
we as people of color in America say this is this is what we experience on a regular basis from these types of officers who, who we consider having a heavy badge, who who um, who are abusive to people of color. And when opportunities come for them to encounter people of the same ethnic background, let's say white, then they're less forceful, they're less abusive, they they talk more and de-escalate more. So during this COVID-19 uh, isolation, people were confronted with this incident, but it's not the only incident that we've been experiencing in America. So before George Floyd said, I can't breathe, Eric Garner in New York said, I can't breathe, and he died from asphyxiation as well. And other people throughout the nation, not only from being choked to death, but being shot unlawfully, being unarmed and shot and killed in, in various different interactions with law enforcement that ended up in the loss of life of people of color, black or brown. What is, what is uh, the difference between George Floyd and any other killing, you think? The only real difference that made this such a popular national movement and a global movement is, I believe, the COVID-19, where everyone was isolated to their TVs. They couldn't go to the parks and distract themselves of the issue of people of color in America. So they couldn't go to the park or the beach or to clubs or bars, and they had to be front confronted with their own biases. They had to be confronted with their own inaction, with uh, the, the plight of their brothers and sisters of different ethnic backgrounds. So mm -hmm. George Floyd was no no greater victim than Eric Garner or Breonna Taylor or any of the other names that we can rattle off is just that it was a perfect storm of focus that made people really have to pay attention. They had no choice. Perfect so I don't... storm. Perfect storm. And Katharina, so let's say I'm sitting in Istanbul and I'm watching what's unfolding in front of me on TV. Uh, what should I what is the essence that I need to know about Black Lives Matter? Well, the essence is, and I want to kind of uh, build off of what Brother Yusuf said, uh, the difference between the, the murder of George Floyd and all of the other murders, including Tamir Rice, who was 12 years old, who was killed in Ohio several years ago in 2016 because he had a toy gun. The difference is that Mr. Floyd was murdered alive in real time. This officer felt like as one of my, I had an opportunity to interview attorney Najma Brown. And she said that these officers basically felt like they were the, the judge, the jury and the executionary. They took the law in their own hands. So the difference is this officer felt like he was privileged enough to literally place his knee on this man's neck and in spite of everyone else asking him to stop, letting him know that this man cannot breathe, he continued to place his knee on his neck. And so in real time, the world watched a man be murdered on television. And that's the difference, right? So when someone is in Istanbul, in Turkey, and they're watching this, they have to understand that historically, it goes beyond Black Lives Matters and the Black Lives Matters movement that's really tied to the civil rights movement. Because what you're looking at is what Dr. William A. Smith, who I had the opportunity to interview yesterday, calls racial battle fatigue. 
we are exhausted. We are, are tired. Look, in 2012, my daughter is seven years old. In 2012, I was uh, carrying my child when the um, Trayvon, when Trayvon Martin was murdered. And, 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 and his, uh, the person who killed him on standard um, ground laws was let out scot-free. This is a young man who's walking to his father's home, has on his hood, and this other young man who, by the way, is, we have to be very careful when we talk about people of color too, let's be very specific. This, the young man who killed Trayvon Martin was also a person of color. His mother was Latina and his father was white or is white. And so we have to be very clear about the history of police brutality, of lynchings, of discrimination and outright institutional and systemic racism that has been happening in schools, in Islamic centers and mosques and churches all over. And it's because of, it's rooted in imperialism. It's rooted in colonialism. And well, w I just have to say one thing really quickly, W.E.B. Du Bois says that the problem not only in education, but the problem of our people here in America is that people don't have an understanding of African history prior to the slave trade, right? And that's rooted in the laws that are here. So we're plain tired of everything that's happening. So that's what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. So if the racial injustice is true in the United States, it's true in any places, Back in my home country in Tehran, there is racial injustice against Baha'is and against Jews and against Sunnis. So what makes it different in the United States? May that I answer we... that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So what makes it different is kind of back to what I said, is that when you have imperialism and colonialism, and when you tie it to the slave trade, right, that brought... Africans from our, our native land all throughout the, the entire diaspora. And then you colonize our continent and you embolden yourself and you become rich off of our minerals and our diamonds and everything that we have. And you make these laws in all of your lands. African people, and it's a macro aggression, it's at the macro level of what we call racial battle fatigue. People of African descent all over the world are treated badly, no matter where they are. We saw in China when COVID-19 came, and unfortunately there was discrimination against Chinese Americans here in the United States. But instead of rising to the occasion and saying, you know, we're not going to go low, we're going to aim high, as Michelle Obama would say, we saw that um, immigrants of African descent were discriminated against and even kicked out of their housings in China. So no matter where you are in the world, people of African descent are always at the lowest of the, at the bottom of the totem pole, even in India. We still have the, the Dalits and, and that, that whole, you know, stigma of being of African descent and being browner than others. So that's yet, the difference. But yet um, there is this urge that perhaps Dr. King told us to make peace with our white brothers. So I want to know Yusuf's take on this. Still, it's been racial injustice. It's been 
injustice against African Americans, against black people. But yet again, why should we ever practice nonviolence protests and demonstrations? Okay, uh, thank you for the question. And, and please let me allow to uh, add a little bit to the first, the prior question. Uh, what is different from here in America and let's say Iran, Iraq, uh, Europe, or something like this, uh, Russia, Germany, is that America, uh, we hold ourselves as a moral leader in the world. So if, if there's no morality in the United States, if there's no freedom, if there's no uh, protection in the United States, that means there can be no protection anywhere. When people think of freedom, they think of America. And when they're forced with they're forced into the idea that America is not treating everyone with freedom. This is something that the whole world has responded to. They, they were under the impression that this was the land of the free. So um, when it comes to how does this relate to people of other cultures around the world, I think they feel in their gut system that this place where we thought was a place of the free, look how it's treating its people of color. So I just wanted to mention that. And um, secondly, about reaching across a table of a Martin Luther King style of, of before we go to the next point very quickly I want to emphasize the point that you just made it's mm -hmm. it's absolutely right I've covered international and what's mm -hmm. happened in the United States really matters really yes. really really matters and since we claim superpower title so what happens in the united states really matters so thank you so much for bringing that up yes and then next point is why should we make peace with our white brothers well the the issue of the african um, american and the african in in the diaspora is that it's not a, a black right that we're fighting for we're fighting for a human right it's a basic human right granted to all peoples, no matter where you're from, what language you speak. So being that it's a human right, every person should be interested in Black Lives Matter. Because if you have the lowest denomination, the Black lives who are not mattering, then nobody else's life matters. Like Martin Luther King said, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It's along this principle. So our white brothers and sisters, our Asian brothers and sisters, whether you're from any place in Europe or wherever in the world, the issue is a human issue. So when we reach across the table, we look at a, a, a mathematic dynamic in the US. For example, the African-American is about 13% of the American population. But we reach across the table to the 60% who claim to be of a white background. Their political force matters in this way because even if you multiply the black American man, woman, and child times four, we're still a few percent shy of the white population of this nation. So this collaboration mathematically makes sense. Not only does it make sense mathematically, but it is their, their duty to make sure that all human beings have the same access to freedom, access to education, access to healthcare. It is a right that everyone is responsible for. Not only the affected people of this tragedy, the affected people of course are gonna yell out, but the non-affected people should get up off their couches, get from behind the TV screen, from the parks and the beaches, and rally with us, and march with us, and vote with us to, in, to change this dynamic. Rally with us, march with us, and to, you know, to create a change. But here's the matter. And I want to ask uh, Katrina's uh, intake. So many people right now say, why do you say Black Lives Matter? We should address all, all lives matter. 
and in my opinion it's wrong black people are getting hurt all of those injustice is happening against them so therefore although it's human rights issues but it's very specific that we have to take encounter of uh, of how we are addressing so i want to see i am i right or what do you think katrina um, yes, and I think, you know, Brother Yusuf had, you know, he touched on that earlier in his answer, and the, the reality is that, and you, when you asked the previous question as well, they're all interrelated, um, the difference between what's happening across the world and what's happening here in the United States with Black people is that other people from across the world can come to the United States and they can better themselves, and they will not be treated the way they were in their homeland. And unfortunately, what I've seen as an educator is that these same people who were, you know, persecuted in their own land will also kind of join hands with I call racist whites because not all whites are racist. We have to be realistic. But what I call racist whites and discriminate against black people and do the same atrocities. Right. So. The reason why it matters is because when we look, no matter what religion we are, whether it's as, as Al-Islam Muslim with our, you know, Prophet Muhammad, who was a humanitarian, whether it's Jesus, who Muslims also believe is Muslim, but, you know, Christians, Jesus, or Moses in Judaism, or even if you don't believe in God, we're all created by the one creator, period, who gives us our rights. God gives us our rights. Man does not give us our rights. And so unfortunately, again, because of the laws that are here in this land that basically specifically said that our people, uh, Yusuf and I, our, our ancestors were less than three fifths of a human being. And, you know, and you have to have amendments for those laws. Those beliefs have been trickled down and it goes even deeper in education where children are taught this in schools. So it matters because if we want to, you know, honestly, let's look at COVID-19. I think COVID-19 is a wake up call. COVID-19 is, you know, although African-Americans of course are dying at higher rates and that's because of social inequities again, you know, um, the reality is COVID-19 has hurt all of us. You know, because we are at the end of the day, one people, we are one humanity. And if we really took on, you know, if we are really people of faith, no matter what faith we believe in, then we would realize that when one person bleeds, the other person bleeds. And so when we take on that perspective and when, and let me be deep with you for a moment, race is a social construct. <laughs> like, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> you're black, you're white, you're this, you're brown, you're... You know, and I've never seen, I've yet to see a yellow person. So whoever came up with these labels, subhanAllah, I mean, God have mercy. But race really at the end of the day is a social construct. If you believe, you'll know that when you go, we're all going the same way. We're all born in this world and we all leave this world, no matter what color we are. So that's why we have to put a human, humanistic point of view on this humanistic point of view on this, what kind of changes you really want to see in the United States? Katrina? In the United States, what I'd like to see, and this is my baby, is that we eradicate uh, racism, starting with uh, institutions, starting with schools. 
here in the United States, we you know we've talked about murders, but we we don't we haven't even touched on the suspension and expulsion rates of African Americans, uh, boys and girls. Uh, the federal the data shows that African American males, boys as early as five years old, are expelled. Excuse me, suspended, expelled, and even arrested at higher rates than any other subgroup of boys, including whites, English language learners, Latinos, Native Americans, and biracial children. It gets even worse for girls because our African-American girls, they outpace white males, <laughs> they outpace EL males, they outpace Latino males. The only subgroups that they don't outpace are Native American males and they tie with races of two or more biracial males. So with that said, you can see, and as Brother Yusuf already stated to you, we're only 13% of the population. So when we're less than, we're 13% of the population, you can imagine what percentage we are of the, uh, of the uh, school enrollments, yet we surpass all subgroups when it comes to suspensions and expulsions. And that's because of the biased, behaviors of the teachers who in this country, 80% of our teachers are white, middle-class and female. And the superintendents and the principals are white males. So you have these ideologies and then you're coming in and you're teaching our kids and you're not even reaching them and you're scared of them. And the other kids are looking at this and let's not even get on the curriculum. We're always teaching from a deficit point of view when it comes to the curriculum. So for my 20 years in education, all I have witnessed is that children, with the exception of either me being there or teaching in an Afrocentric school, the curriculum is always centered around the civil rights movement, when our children, when we were brought here in chains. And so now we're teaching kids that African people or African Americans are still subhuman. And so I would love for that to change first. And when we start with education, you will see that because children grow up and they become adults. They become the police officers that put their knees on George Floyd's necks, right? And the, the, the saddest part is the internalized racism. That's a whole nother show that people of African descent have to deal with on top of the trauma and the racial battle fatigue. George Floyd, and I'm going to yield it to Brother Yusuf, but George Floyd's teacher came out with a letter that he wrote when he was in the second grade. He was like seven or eight years old. And this boy wanted to be, this man, when he was a boy, wanted to, he aspired to be like um, Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall. He wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. But this is this can happen in the United States. This is my counter argument very quickly. So I, this this is one of my takes. And we are going to discuss this after I come back for yeah. the break. But Bar Barada Youssef, tell me what kind of changes you really want to see in the United States? Well, I think uh, it all is based on the idea that America has this freedoms of inalienable rights for everyone born here. But by culture, they make sure that those rights are only for a select group of people, the status quo. That right to be extended to other people of this, of this country, black, white, brown, Asian, 
everyone has to fight for inclusion in that promise that was made back in the constitution. But that constitution was not, people of color were not in the idea of that constitution until we forced it in the 60s. So the changes that need to be made based on expanding this inalienable rights of all human beings is in healthcare. Black and brown people have very poor access to proper health care. Education, as the sister already mentioned, we are uh, highest amount of suspensions and expulsions. Um, we're in the back of the class. We have underfunded schools and, and poor supply and, and, and sometimes even poor teachers as, as well. We have uh, problems in housing and, and loans, actual business loans. The, uh, we find that African-Americans are high rejected on business loans to build equity in our communities and our brown brothers and sisters as well. Home loans, we find that people of color have a higher, a, a harder chance of getting an equitable home loan. So all of these factors makes for building equity and equity, which is money and power base, that, that has a lot of weight in, in helping people catch up to the status quo, but we are barred from those things. So the things that need to be changed are on many systems within America, whether it's health, whether it's legal justice system. We were talking about the George Floyd issue, which, which brought all this to head, but not only the officers on the street and the policing culture, but also our court systems, the judges and the lawyers who give higher penalties for people of color. So if I'm a black man, and I, let's say, steal a car, God forbid, I steal a car and a white man steals a car, I will get a harsher penalty than the white guy and it will ruin my career. Well, he'll get a slap on the wrist. So he'll get joyriding while I'll get grand theft auto. One is a felony and one is a misdemeanor. A felony, you're spending longer time in jail. You have a harder time getting a job when you get out. So it's this systemic oppression of people of color that's built into this culture. And that culture is the culture of what we consider to be a land of the free and inalienable rights for all human beings. But it's not true on the, on, on the surface because of all these institutions that oppress black and brown peoples. When we come back, I'm gonna address the same issue. I have two questions. I want us to see what kind of questions or concerns you have that you think has never been addressed. And I'm just gonna to touch upon the United States and how we deal in, in a national level with our racial issues. So stay with me, please. You are watching To Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. We are live streaming our conversation here on Facebook. You can learn about our guests in details in goldtune.com, G-O-L-T-U-N-E.com. And please, when you go there, subscribe to our newsletter. We send out our newsletter once a week on Thursdays, and we just give a wealth of information about what we are doing, about our stories, uh, international coverage. And then you can also write back to us, editor at goldtune.com, about the questions, comments, feedbacks that you have for me, for Goldtune, for Mateen, and about this program.
This is the last episode of season one. I'm coming back on September 1st, Tuesday. It's going to be on Tuesday and I'm live streaming every Tuesdays at 12 noon for 13 weeks. So from September up until the end of November for the season two, I'm featuring writers, artists and filmmakers for this hour. I'm talking to Katrina Hassan Hamilton, freelance journalist for Muslim Journal educator and mother. Katrina calls herself an excellent communicator, leader, problem solver, and agent of positive change. As we can see, she's very passionate about the footprint that she's making on, on her life and our lives as an activist and educator. She's working on her podcast program to be aired soon, and maybe she would like to address that. Yosef Miller is one of the leaders of interfaith community in San Diego. He has been active in many social justice activities, including Poway Interfaith Team or Point, and then San Diego Regional Interfaith Collaborative and District Attorney's Interfaith Advisory Council. So I'm welcoming Yosef and Katrina, and I want to know what are the issues or questions or concerns that you think media or people needed to people who are doesn't necessarily share the same pain that you share must have been talking about or addressing and they haven't been so who would like to jump in okay go katrina all right <laughs> um I, I do want to just say that Brother Yusuf, Mush, um, I, I'm very appreciative of all of his comments uh, prior to the break. Um, they're very relevant and part of the generational trauma and uh, generational inequities that we've had even with wealth. So one of the things that I, I, I guess one of the questions would be is that, you know, ask yourself for a moment, why is it that African-Americans have been here for so long and yet people from other countries can come over and no matter what complexion they are, if they're brown or whatever complexion they are, they can prosper, right? And so you have to ask yourself that. Um, I know that there is this, this notion that African-Americans are lazy, that, you know, we're the vast majority of us are uneducated in our, and we're on welfare and we're dependent on the system. There are all of these stereotypes. But you literally have to ask yourself, why is this happening? Brother Yusuf and I both live in, in San Diego and I can give you areas of San Diego and you can look all over the country and see the gentrification that's happening in certain areas, but also seeing how there is this generational wealth that African-Americans have never been able to achieve. And I mean, let me take that back. We were able to achieve that, but because of the, 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 the disease of racism, a lot of our areas were burned down. Like you can, you can Google it. That's the beauty of technology. There's Greenwood, there's Tulsa. There are areas where we had, there's something called the Black Wall Street. I encourage all of you to Google Black Wall Street so you can get the history of the, the businesses that we had. Even when we isolate ourselves and we do our own thing, that's still not enough. And so when I go back to the housing here in San Diego, there are homes in an area that I love. It's called Point Loma. They're over $1.6 million. 
And when you look down, you'll see that those homes were purchased like in 1978 for $55,000. Well, guess what? African-Americans were not allowed to purchase those homes because of redlining and all of these other racist discriminatory laws that prohibited us, regardless if we were doctors or had our own money to purchase these homes, we couldn't purchase them. So now you have these homes that these people, they're able to pass on to their descendants and they can make over a million dollars. Like Brother Yusuf said, we don't have that capital. Um, T, uh, Professor Hassan Johnson, I had an opportunity to interview him yesterday, and he said, although the vast majority of entrepreneurs right now today are African-American females, like we're just rapidly climbing up that ladder, that opportunity, Sarah, that you had mentioned, when you drill down, those African-American entrepreneurs, including myself, are usually a team of one, <laughs> and they're building off of no capital. We don't have that equity. We don't have people who will say, hey, here's a million dollars. Go run with it. Go build your, your, your business. And then when we go to the banks, and I know Brother Yusuf mentioned our black and browns, but unfortunately what's happening, especially here in America, we start, there's race baiting. So now it's like, okay, I'm going to continue this war and I'm going to start giving brown communities more than the black communities so they can start interfighting. And it's just this, this constant viciousness. So I would like for us to, again, ask yourself the question as to why are people of African descent in America so tired? And when you look at our history and you see everything that has happened to us, you will see why. I am tired of explaining to my daughter about what's going on. She used to love police officers. And the more you see the news and the more you hear these stories, our kids are now hiding in fear. That's what I told uh, Professor Kenyatta Bakir, and she addressed that yesterday. And she's the reason why I'm here on your show today. So I have to give a shout out to her. But, you know, our kids are, are scared. They're scared. They should not have to be scared because they're beautiful. But we're, so ask yourself, why are we like we are? And you'll see when you read it. Very good. So, Yusuf, so what media or any other institution does not address something that we need to hear? Well, I think one of the umbrella terms would be systemic racism. And it includes everything that we've been talking about here today. When we talk about systemic racism, we it is a systematic, it, it doesn't have to be legal or illegal. So it's systematic oppression of another people based on their race and color, then this is a systematic racism. So uh, I get a lot of pushback saying, oh, well, systematic racism is, is against the law. That doesn't mean that it's not happening. And the term itself does not equate to whether it's legal or not. It just equates to what's happening. So right now we're under the, you know, the George Floyd movement of Black Lives Matter, and we're talking about systemic racism in law enforcement. But that's not the only place. And I want to make sure that people understand systemic racism happens in healthcare. COVID-19 hit the black and brown communities very hard, like a sledgehammer, not because black and brown people are predisposed to COVID-19, is that our communities have been redlined, as the sister mentioned, Sister Hamilton, and they've been stacked on one on top of another. And this is conducive to COVID-19 spreading. Now, this stacking one on top of another and poor access to healthcare is not by accident. It's by design 
is by neglect of the African-American community. So this caused a spike in COVID-19. Uh, we talk about education. There's a systematic exclusion of people of color in education, which we're trying to rectify now. Nobody wants to talk about Black people and people of color getting a leg up in education when it comes to admissions, but they have no qualms with legacy programs in, in education, where if your father went to the school, you're more likely to get into a school, Harvard, Yale, you know, you're a legacy of that school. So that gives you extra points. So that extra point system is good, but the extra point system for underprivileged people, they consider that bad. It's a hypocrisy within our educational system, which is another systematic oppression. So when we go through these oppressions, we see that it's a whole large uh, monster that needs to be addressed. It needs to be neutralized. And we need people that reach across the table to help address it. I'm not going to be on the inside track of this system. I'm going to outside track getting affected. We need our white brothers and sisters who are righteous, who are on the inside track that hear it to dismantle it, to destroy it, to call it out so that everyone can have access to this uh, land of the free, this American dream. Land of the free and American dream. But here is my point. Mm -hmm. You mentioned at the beginning of the discussion that what happens in the United States really matters and people watch and people matters to them. They may take actions in Tehran, in Istanbul, in Dubai, in many places. I know that people are on the streets and the event has uh, struck the moment for them to just call on their governments about injustice. But here's what I'm seeing. I mean, I, I know many constitutions around the world and I see see that in the United States, we have a very unique opportunity. You and African-Americans, Black brothers and sisters can come to the streets and chant and demonstrate and contest of racial issues. The same thing cannot happen in many parts of the world cannot happen. So I wanted to see probably just address this fact that it is it is true. It is improving and we do want to see the changes, but at least it's in the fabric of this nation that we can voice our dissatisfaction. Okay, yes. So in the Constitution, you know, in our laws, it allows people to have this free expression, but people of color were excluded from that. Now, before we had TV, uh, blasting all over the world. If you were African-American and you marched like you did now, you were hosed, you were, dogs were put on you, you were shot down and you were killed. The thing that made the difference is in the 60s, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he did a very brilliant stroke. He had made it so that the opportunity for this could be exposed. And that's the first time anything went viral, okay, in my opinion. This is the first uh, viral event. So everyone around the world get to see that black people, when they protest, they're getting hosed down, they're getting uh, dogs put on them, they're getting beaten in the head, they're being killed. So the, the process of the ability to protest is not something that was given to us. It's actually something we take. We don't, we don't ask them, can we do it? We take it. So the, the ability to do it is more for white people. Right. They can do it and they can just have a counter protest. But we started off without the ability and we took it. 
so I don't give the credit to the American legal system. I don't give the credit to our constitution because we had to fight for it and we actually bled, sweat, and died for it. So, but now the whole world is connected. In other words, the world is getting smaller. And when they do things like that, it goes around the world. So what happened in the 60s when they did that and, and, it, and the, the world saw all these things happen? America had to justify its claim as the moral leader with these images that went around, around the world. So then they backed off of us. And this is what you're seeing. When those images now, they go across the world quick now. You could be in a small country with just a little bit of internet and you can see what happened to George Floyd. You can be in Syria where they're bombed and they're oppressed and you can see a mural of George Floyd. In Palestine where they're oppressed and you can see a mural of George Floyd because the world is so small and it's, it's, it's thrusted around the world. So the, the credit goes to the people who march on the street and not the American fabric because uh, we were still killed and still now killed, fought, pepper sprayed, gassed for marching now. Our indigenous brothers, when they fight to keep the pipelines from going through their communities, they are getting gassed and sprayed. So they stay there anyway, they fight. So the credit goes to our indigenous brothers and sisters. Absolutely. I agree with you. Katrina, I want us to tell you about uh, the podcast that you are thinking. Would you like to talk about that? Oh, the podcast that I'm thinking is, is twofold. One, it addresses the, the issues that we're talking about today, uh, the racial battle fatigue and, you know, how we're exhausted. Um, we've been fighting this fight a long time. And as much as I don't like the term white privilege, you know, unfortunately, that is it's a phenomenon that exists here in the United States and probably all throughout the world. It's, it's just rooted in so many different institutions, right? Um, so because I'm an educator, the podcast, of course, focuses on education, institutional racism, and the experiences that children, families, and um, educators have when they're working, whether they're working in preschool, uh, elementary, middle school, or high school. Do you have a name for your podcast yet? Uh, one, well, one of my uh, stories will be Rakaya's Reality, and it's, one of, it's based on my daughter. And as educated as I am, and I wanted to touch, I think, you know, look at Brother Yusuf. Yusuf, what's new going on with you? Well, uh, right now, we, as the Racial Justice Coalition, one of the many uh, organizations here in San Diego who fight racial injustices, and, and there's many that are fighting this fight, we're trying to take the neck restraint, and we have taken a neck restraint ban all the way up to the state capital of California. So we want to make sure that even if law enforcement in particular areas try to backpedal on banning the neck restraint, that it becomes law and they have to implement it as policy. Also, there's a ballot measure on the uh, ballot for people who don't feel comfortable out there marching. Some people, not everybody feels comfortable marching. Not everybody feels comfortable yelling and giving big speeches, but there are things that you can vote on. So for example, the ballot measure in November in San Diego, it gives the civilian, uh, the community review board, more teeth into reviewing misconducts of law enforcement. And we that is on the ballot and we want people to vote for that as, as generous as possible. We're trying to get more de-escalation, more interaction with communities that make sense with law enforcement so that we can have a better uh, communication and, and fewer incidences of, of oppression and abuse. These are the things that are coming out. 
Excellent. So here is my last question, and we are going to go to the closing. In a sense, I believe that we cannot reach the peace without going through a war. Am I right? What do you think about that? Well, I think war is a strong word, but um, the peace has to be fought for. We, we've seen that peace is not just something that's freely given, especially if it's in the hands of a selective few. They have to be, they, they, it has to be agitated out of their hands. And uh, that's, that's the perspective that I, I would use, that this agitation, this revolution, this, this voicing our complaint, it's not going to come easy by the moral attitude of an oppressor. So we find that all over the world, and it's no different here in America, that uh, people have to agitate and to push and pull against the current structure to make change. And as long as there are people who are comfortable in this era of, of oppression, then they are not going to do anything to get off their comfortable spots. So we need to agitate and continue to agitate. And that's why we ask people all, of all backgrounds, white, black, whatever, to stay in the fight. We need your help continuously. We need your help not only in 2020, we need your in 2021, 2022, three and four, on throughout the years because we can only move forward together. That's the only way we can dismantle this, this systematic racism is if we do it together and you come out of your comfortability and look for the opportunities and, and fight for the opportunities of everyone else along with you. Then we'll move in a moral fashion. Excellent. Stay with me, Yusuf. You are watching To Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. I'm talking with two leaders of Black Lives Matter, Katrina Hassan Hamilton and Yusuf Miller. So uh, there are wealth of information and about what Mr. Miller does and what he's about, what he, I mean, where he goes and the activities that he does. You can find many of those on Facebook, on his profile. He's very active. And as he said, we need people, we want people, especially people who are white and do have this privilege uh, for the movement, within the movement. So please reach out to him. Katrina is available on a Muslim journal and she is producing her podcast. I'm sure that she's going to have ton of information for us to learn about Black Lives Matter and about uh, what we need to do in terms of making America a better place for all of us, for all of us. At the end of the program, I ask my guests to close the program for me by sharing thoughts, ideas, a prayer, something about peace, about kindness and compassion. And then I'm going to go to Katrina first and then to uh, Yusuf. So go ahead, Katrina. We, we don't have much time, so I keep it short. But what would you like to share with us about peace and kindness? Yes, definitely. You have to ask yourself, what is the world that you would like to live in and not only live in, but the world that you would like to leave behind for your children or the next generation? That's the question that we always ask. And if you're comfortable with the way that things are right now, then that's fine. But if not, then let's work together uh, because it's really about humanity. And when we talk about privilege, we also have to understand that 
And we have to be safe too, because we understand that we are living through a virus that's going on right now. So there are other ways of peacefully protesting. You can write. I have uh, written for the Muslim Journal. And so I've taken my pen to the paper and that's a form of protest. We have others who are like um, Attorney General Keith Ellison. He is actually the Attorney General who is fighting for justice in Minnesota. So I just don't want the world to think that, you know, the poor African-Americans, no, we are lawyers, we are judges, we are doctors, we are on every level. Um, but what you can do is when you see an injustice taking place against a person of African descent, whether they're a faculty member that only won at uh, a university, or if they're the only student, stick up for them. Stop the microaggressions. Don't ask them, oh, you, you, you're, you must be really brilliant because all African-Americans aren't like that. No, stop that. So that's what you can do. Speak up and speak out. And that's what is what is usb2.org? Tell, tell us about the organization. So usb2.org um, is United Shades of Black and Brown, and it's actually like a nonprofit out, and it's born out of my corporation called Uniting Shades of Humanity, because at the end of the day, you know, we are all one. But uh, United Shades of uh, Black and Brown is working towards eradicating racism in uh, schools. And so you will see the podcast that we were talking about, like, you know, Rakaya's rea reality. Our children go to school and no matter what types of schools we put them in, whether they're private schools or public schools, they're always discriminated against unless we have an African-centered school. And it should not be that way. You know, our children should be able to be educated and should be able to be children. And Yusuf, so what would you like to share with us about peace, kindness, compassion? Well, I would like to invite everyone to go to uh, the Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego. Uh, make sure you put up San Diego so you can see what we're doing here in San Diego and throughout California and throughout the nation. And it, it should, if you're not here, in San, in San Diego, please still follow it because it can give you ideas, justice ideas in your own neck of the woods. I mean, we want to make sure we share this. This is free for everyone to fight for this, these opportunities for, for people from everywhere. And lastly, I would like to say that I want to thank everyone who has, who has rallied behind this issue. Uh, uh, white brothers and sisters, our, our brown brothers and sisters, indigenous people from all over the world have been participating in the, the equity portion of, of Black Lives Matter in this nation. And you should not go unsung. We need you. You're here and you're standing up. Stay involved throughout the years. We needed you before George Floyd. You're here now. Great. Please stay. Please stay to make this world a type of world that we can all live in. So I thank you from coast to coast. I thank you from all ethnic backgrounds. And I thank you from countries around the world. I love you and I thank you. Saying is important and having voice and voicing our opinion about injustice is very important. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts, your time and your intellect with me, with Mateen. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Khoda Hafiz.